Today on The Topping Show, Steven Crowder joins Rumble, Elon Musk versus Amazon, Superman is American again, European Union knocks down Apple, also the EU gives Ukraine a million rounds of ammunition, Foot Locker to close 400 stores, steering wheels are now optional, and the eye drops you used to use now make you blind. All that and much, much more on The Topping Show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. Today's episode of The Topping Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN and Topping Technologies. ExpressVPN helps protect your online data, and Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. If you're a business owner or an IT leader and could use some assistance, you can reach them at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Now, jumping into the business part of the podcast, Amazon and Elon Musk are going head-to-head via the satellite communication capabilities. Amazon announced they are launching a portable satellite internet dishes to directly compete with Elon Musk's company, Starlink. Now, this is via a blog post. We found that two of the three Amazon dish sizes will be less expensive as well as smaller in size compared to Elon's Starlink. Amazon dishes will most likely connect to Amazon's website called Project Kuniper, K-U-I-P-E-R, Cooper, however you pronounce it. And Amazon projects they will launch thousands of orbiting satellites with a goal to serve underserved communities across the globe. Even more impressive, they claim that their first dish will hit 400 megabytes per second, which is pretty astonishing considering Elon Starlink currently delivers speeds between 50 megabytes per second and 200 megabytes per second. Granted, those are also ideal solutions and ideal situations. Just through anecdotal evidence, I've had some friends with RVs throughout the U.S. traveling, and sometimes their speed's as slow as 7 megabytes per second. So there are a lot of variables, but between 50 and 200 is what people can usually expect from that technology. And Elon did actually expand recently, so Starlink is expanding into Nigeria most recently. And in terms of commercial communication technologies from that perspective, Starlink's been pretty cutting edge for a little while now. You've always had those little pocket-sized devices that come from traditional companies like AT&T, Verizon, where you have little hotspots. But this is a whole whole other tier of technology that are helping people, especially in mobile rural areas. And Amazon, they like to compete, so we'll be able to see which one comes out on top with both companies having seemingly bottomless pits of funds for competition. So maybe Elon will slash the price to compete on a price point, or maybe he'll make the newest version of the Starlink modules a little bit faster, maybe a little bit smaller, as technology always usually decreases in size over time. Now, going to the other section of the business podcast, Foot Locker announced that they were going to close 400 stores, mostly in malls. The goal is to close all of them by 2026. One of the reasons they're doing this is to become more relevant to younger buyers by relaunching their brand with the new experimental store concepts. And appropriately enough, the store closing and revitalization project is called Lace Up. So there's an appropriate project name, that's got to be the best one in the year I've heard thus far. Now, specifically, 10% of the stores are going to be closed in the United States. So a little bit of math for you. That's 40 stores that are going to be gone. And most of them, other, other stores are going to be across the globe. They also noted that including in their store closings, they're going to close 125 of their underperforming champs stores as well and it's interesting to see how this business continues to try to evolve 
Nike is one of their greatest partners, and that one brand accounts for 55 to 60% of their entire portfolio. Which is especially concerning because if you look at the trend of Nike in the past couple of years, they've been throwing a lot of time, money, and resources into the direct-to-consumer cons sales model. And specifically, in 2019, Nike revealed that they invested so heavily into the direct-to-consumer business model, it accounted for $11.8 billion of Nike's revenue. And with more and more of these companies going direct-to-consumer, you're going to see that trend continue to grow. You have a lot of clothing companies similar to the Gap and Old Navy. I forget it was one or the other, but one of the ways that the company was able to start with such a strong sales off the bat was they were one of the first big retail stores for Levi jeans. With that being one of the most popular jeans out there, still to this day, a pretty strong brand. And today you see that Levi has a lot of independent stores. If you go to shopping malls or little strip malls, you'll actually see a dedicated Levi Strauss store. They're not just in their other indirect sales model stores where if you go to an Old Navy or Foot Locker, you'll see the brands there. Or I guess with Levi, you also have Target and other clothing stores and JCPenney. But this is a trend that's only going to accelerate as more and more consumers are looking for that. I think there's two reasons a lot of companies are doing it. A lot of consumers prefer it because one is speed because you're directly communicating with the manufacturer. And in some cases, that is much more effective. And also sometimes because of the lower price point because the manufacturer doesn't have to work with that extra cost. Or rather, the reseller doesn't have the additional cost of transportation of the goods. They actually have to put together a marketing campaigns so people know you carry the goods. Then you have to pay the employees to actually stock the shelves with the goods. And then you have to, if someone comes to the shoe store, you got to actually pay to size them for the right shoe. So there's a lot more variables in that traditional business model, which add cost complexity. Though, I would also say it does help the consumer. If you want a specific size, you go to a Foot Locker, they'll be able to help you out. But, of course, Nike is also having a couple of direct stores where it's a brick and mortar for only them. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Over in the automotive section, steering wheels are now optional, oddly enough. So the National Highway Traffic Association Safety Administration, so many acronyms with the government, it is hard to keep track of any of them. This one is the NHTSA. They have ruled that driverless cars no longer need manual controls. Some manufacturers have had these concepts on the shelves for years, literally just waiting for approval from the government. You have the General Motors with their Chevy Cruze Origin. Then Amazon subsidiary Zooks, Z-O-O-X, is also in development with their wireless model. Now, interestingly enough, the NHTSA notes that manual controls are, quote-unquote, logically unnecessary in cars designed solely for autonomous driving. Now, the paranoid and as well as the cybersecurity professional in me always questions, well, that's less controls for the consumer if something goes wrong, you are you literally have no safety to override or there's no way to actually counter anything bad happening. And you've already had cars being hacked successfully by malicious actors where they can actually shut down the car, turn the car. And it's even harder when there's no wheel to, you literally have no way to counter it. And this did happen a couple years back, Wired.com in their, their magazine. They had someone take over a Jeep, I believe it was a Grand Cherokee, on the highway, remotely. They hacked into the SUV, they moved it to the very rightmost lane of the highway, they actually put it on the shoulder, and they turned it off, 
all remotely. And with cybersecurity, it's always a game of cat and mouse. So even though it's not required, I would debate probably be good to have some safe physical safety features, maybe an e-brake. So if anything goes too fast, you always physically slam it up. But that's also being out ousted, of course, with more and more cars using the now the e-brakes where you have a little it's electronic, not just an emergency brake, it's electronic. So you actually have a toggle switch and that has some motors that actuate the brake pads to seize the rear brake calipers, seizing all of that together. So yeah, it's one of those things where calibers, compression of the rotors, and it's all electronic. So personally, I like the old school safety. You just yank it, and it's just a wire. No electronics, and it makes it stop pretty quick. It'll be interesting to see how many of these projects get off the ground with the driver's vehicles. You also, it's not just a federal government thing. You have to have a lot of the state laws, and you have to have a lot of state constituents agree to allow autonomous driving within their area. That'll be another thing that I think slows down the progression of some of these automotive, auto, automatic technologies. But it'll be interesting to see what section it takes off the fastest. Now going to the culture section of the podcast, Superman is American once again, as of course he should always be. Superman will now say truth, justice, and the American way, as he originally did. This mantra will be restored in the upcoming Superman movie. And this is coming off of the 2021 censorship from DC Comics, the manufacturer behind it, and in 2021, they removed the famous mantra from their comic books and changed it to truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Quote, unquote. That's, that was their new brilliant saying, which is this is probably a fancier word for saying pathetic, unexciting, boring, some might say woke, un-American, ridiculous. He is clearly an American citizen. I'm pretty sure he gained that in one of the comic strips. He came here, we claimed him. And of course, it was written in America. Now, the original Superman comic book came out in 1938. So he's been American for quite some time. And the actual comic book was called Action Comics Number 1. And check your attic, because that comic book originally sold for 10 cents. And thanks to not just inflation, but collectability... One recently sold in 2014 for $3.2 million. Because, of course, you can always argue the art behind it, as well as the historical provenance of being a staple of American culture. Because for decades, it was truth, justice, and the American way. It was a symbol of freedom, doing the right thing, and being the superhero that we all know and loved. Now, it's glad to see that there's starting to be some pushback to some of those altercations and getting back to the original concepts and original works. Hopefully this actually bleeds over into the comics, which I'm sure some people still buy. Um, and it's not just this movie. It'll be interesting to see how that goes out. Now, other interesting cultural news. Steven Crowder joins Rumble. And this is also going... Uh, he's been on there for a while, but now his official Mug Club will be on there as well. He's a famous stand-up comedian, podcast host with over 6 million followers on YouTube alone. And he was one of the most brilliant... And he's also a conservative stand-up and conservative perspective. And perhaps the most famous conservative in that regard, in terms of the industry and the entertainment area as well. He has a really famous sit-down show called Change My Mind, where he'll go to college campuses and he'll have to just talk to people. Really great long-format interviews where you talk about what your opinion is around certain subjects and see if you can change his mind. And, of course, he usually wins with, of course, knowledge facts because those are pretty important 
to most people anyway. And he always had this exclusive club, which he brilliantly started when YouTube started to crack down on censorship, where if he said certain things, they would literally just kill your channel, either demonetize it so you could not make money off of it, or they would just give you a strike and three strikes, the channel is just deleted from history, disgustingly enough. So he actually came up with a brilliant sales idea where he had his mug club. So you had the regular TV show, or I guess not TV, it was a regular program on YouTube, and I believe it was about an hour long. So you have his daily podcast talking about a lot of politi political news. And then he said, hey, I can't talk about certain things on YouTube. I'll get banned. So buy this subscription to Mug Club, and on this separate platform, we're going to release content exclusively for you so you could hear the things that YouTube won't allow you to hear which is a brilliant marketing idea. It was actually copied by the Daily Wire when Jeremy Boring admitted that he loved that idea and they believe they call their, I forget what they call their specific version of it, but it's the same concept. And it's helped that company grow exponentially. And so it's a brilliant idea, but Steven Crowder, his contract with The Blaze ended. So he was looking for a new venue and he was debatably going to do something with the Daily Wire. And they're just a contract negotiation where they wouldn't line up with a couple philosophical ideals, specifically with the demonetization where there's a catch-22 in the entertainment industry where even though they are building their own independent media venues and hosting sites and capabilities, the major eyes are still on YouTube and the traditional media outlets. So in the proposed contract, to Steven Crowder, they said, if you have certain strikes on YouTube or if you get pulled off YouTube, we will pay you less. And Steven interpreted that as them being behest to big tech, which in a way is kind of true, but, and he expected to make the same amount of money, regardless of if his program could not appear on YouTube. So it was one of those things where the Daily Wire couldn't afford to pay him money that they were no longer getting because the Daily Wire via YouTube, they still get money on there. And even though Steven Crowder couldn't make or can't make monetization money off YouTube in terms of he has a commercial on a show and YouTube pays him a percentage of that. He can still have a product placement, such as my mug on the table there, or thermos. And that placement allows him to sell that advertising to third parties, such as independent business owners. And in that way, he can still make money off the main YouTube channel. However, if that channel goes away, you no longer have that ability to have a product placement. So there's a little bad blood under that situation. Unfortunately, it was, and it technically wasn't a contract, it was a terms and sheet that Jeremy Boring the Daily Wire proposed to Steven Crowder. But one of the things Steven noted that day one, he will have 350 paid subscribers that he would bring to the Daily Wire. And a lot of people are debating how much overlap are these between these two conservative media companies. But, so a lot of people didn't know, and in business, you can never, I've learned this the hard way, of course, everyone does. Nothing ever goes exactly as planned or exactly as projected. The cost will always be more, the complexities will always be more, and the revenue will never be as much as you hope off the bat, especially. So it's a bleak thing, but I always tell people if you want to start a business, whatever your projected cost is, double it, just things are going to come up. So D during the negotiation with Daily Wire, Steven Crowder said, Day one, I believe he said he was going to have around 350,000 paid subscribers, which would be phenomenal. That He does have a, one of the widest audiences, bar none. 
And a lot of people thought that was feasible, but the Daily Wire were hesitant because that's a big risk to pay him so much up front. And if that doesn't deliver, I mean, that's they're going to bleed money for a couple of years. Bleed as in they're losing money while they're paying him. And you have to get that ROI so that you pay for employees and, of course, expand the business. So Steven Crowder yesterday did achieve something great. He has 58,000 prepaying, um, prepaying subscribers for his $89 per year mug club, which does fall short of the 350,000 he was proposing he thought he might be able to get. But I'd still say that's a huge accomplishment. I mean, just doing a little bit of the math, that means that off the bat, that's $5,152,000, which is incredible since he's going up against some of the largest media companies ever. So it's a big accomplishment that he's achieving. I wish him the best of luck. I think he's going to do great things. It's interesting to see how much he'll be able to grow that audience on Rumble alone. He already has 1.2 million subscribers, which is phenomenal. And he does have an agreement with Rumble, so they're an exclusive mug club provider for his content, which is a huge achievement. So this is great news in terms of independent media. He has some great content. I especially do like the Change Your Mind where you get to learn some different perspectives. Definitely something you should check out. Now going into the political news, we have a, a lot's been going on in the EU, which normally I wouldn't be too interested in. However, the ripple effect, it all affects us eventually. Now, interestingly enough, going back to the business Poland, the EU knocks down Apple again. Now, the EU's most recent ruling is Apple cannot limit the USB Type-C charging speed. This idea, or this came from a 2022 ruling that said Apple had to convert all of their cell phones from the proprietary charging port to USB-C. Now, the European Union ruled that USB-C, say that 12 times in a row, USB Type-C will be the standard charging port for all cameras, tablets, and cell phones by fall of 2024 and for most of Apple's history they've had that proprietary charging port data transfer port whatever you want to call the bloody thing and one of the things that Apple claims is we're designing this we know how to fully optimize the whole ecosystem the environment for all these accessories our cord is so much faster and technically it is a lightning cord it is quite fast if you ever do data transfers but the EU, European Union is pushing back saying well, you're the only one allowed to make this cord, so we're going to slap this. You can't make that exclusive. So EU forced them to go USB, USB, USB Type-C. So Apple had to deal with that. And, of course, they no longer can sell their proprietary cord as a huge revenue loss to the company. And, of course, with accessories, with most businesses, that's where more of the profit margin is made as well. So there's a lot of concern around that in Apple. So people are starting to speculate, well, if you can do any cord... Apple's just going to make it so, okay, here's our USB, USB Type-C cord. If you use our cord, it'll charge in, whatever, 30 minutes. If you use a third-party cord, and the, I'm making up these monitors, it'll, la it'll take you three hours to charge. Which one do you want to buy? Because Apple does, it is fascinating, Apple does have the software to detect third-party cables being plugged into those phones. So they know which is theirs and which is not. So if they could disincentivize people enough, then they can still maintain that part of their accessory portfolio and their revenue for their product that they designed, they pay for, they engineered. And from a business perspective, I don't see why the government should be forcing them to make that. If it's 
part of their ecosystem is their product. I think the EU, their argument, and again, it's probably some fancy legalese, but it's something along the lines of there's such a great vast number that the average person is so impacted, the EU is going to take the side of the people. Although I don't know how that works in terms of business perspective. We shall see how that works out. Now, going on to other news of the EU, the EU is going to send 1 million rounds of ammunition to the Ukraine. So they recently agreed to send 1 million rounds over the next 12 months. The million rounds will be a combination of ammunition from the European Union's own stockpile, as well as ammo that they will procure for the Ukraine. The goal is to procure as much ammo as possible before October. The leaders of the EU expect that the final seal approval to come by the end of the week. Now, interestingly enough, this is the first time in history, I believe, that the US, that the um, EU are going to jointly buy and arm munitions for a country at war. They're also not, they're also not part of the EU, strangely enough. And for years, there's been always rumors of when are they going to join? Why aren't they joining? Are they more Russian? Are they, are they more... Where, where do they land geographically, politically, philosophically when there's some mixed views of the people, there's different parties in the in that country that would maybe want to be of Russia, certain really want to be of the EU. And there's always this wonder of where do they fall? And it'll be interesting to see how things progress throughout the, the conflict, war, what have you call it. Now, in terms of the stages of this action, first the EU will declare one billion to countries to either donate ammo immediately from their own stockpiles or redirect orders and second they're going to set aside another billion to buy jointly ammo for ukraine also maybe missiles which are much more complex expensive that's a bigger investment as well and for the ukraine and then release europe's donated shells interestingly enough only 18 countries in the eu have signed on to this quote-unquote collaboration procurement of ammo there are 27 countries currently part of the EU. Now, it'll be interesting to see, oddly enough, I mean, they have unlimited money, relatively speaking, thanks to the US funding the Ukraine. It'll be interesting to see where they start to invest that in terms of arms and munitions and resources throughout the conflict. Now, going on to the business blunder of the day, and this perhaps might be the business blunder of the year, Artificial Tears, the brand of eye drops, can cause blindness. This is resulting from a very rare strain of bacteria that has been found in some of the eye drops and linked to dozens of infections. The rare strain of the drug resistant, this is a probably a good scrabble word, uh, scrabble word, but I'll butcher it unfortunately. Cedeomyas erginosia, P S E U D O M O N A S is the first word, and A E R U G I N O S A, eruginosa. Sounds French, but nevertheless, those have never been reported in the United States. And unfortunately, this can cause not only vision loss, you have to surgically remove the eyeballs, and it's caused one death from using eye drops, which is astonishingly horrific. Now, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention has identified 68 patients in 16 states. So if you're using that brand, Artificial Tears, throw them away immediately. They do have a recall. Oddly enough, I haven't seen it, enough publicity around it. Hopefully they will get the word out on every major news outlet possible so that no one has to suffer that fate because it's definitely life-changing and it's detrimental. I mean, the exact opposite 
of the intent of eye drops. They actually will now cause blindness. So always be on your toes. That is definitely the business blunder of the day. Thank you everyone so much for taking the time to view today's show. Don't forget to, if you want to see more content like this, like, subscribe, comment. It helps out the channel. Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your enemies, heck, tell anyone to stay safe and fight the good fight.